Welcome to episode 133 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, the audio is probably a little different right now. Why is the audio different? It's different because I can reach out and touch you. It's true. It's true. We are recording in the family room of um, where I live, which is where Jesse grew up. So it's kind of surreal. We are uh, gathered as a family over Easter weekend, but we are actually gathered for the 40th anniversary of Jesse's mom and dad, which is awesome. Uh, we don't normally get together for Easter, which is seems appropriate for our podcast. <laughs> so I'm glad that we're together, though, for this time. And here we are. It's so good to be in person. It is. It's nice. So so the audio sounds a little weird. Please forgive us. Uh, we're trying this microphone in a way that we haven't used it. So we won't know until after we've recorded for an hour and can't do anything about it at that point. We're doing this old school. It's we just are. two dudes and a microphone. It is. Sitting on, a the, table. on the same side of a table, snuggled up on a love seat here, basically. <laughs> it's a lot of love It right is a now. lot of love right now. So... Jesse, why don't we rock it with some affirmations and denials? So this week, I'm affirming with a book that I came across that's been really helpful for me. It's called Pray the Word, and it's by a woman named Tice King, who's a missionary in, I believe, Thailand. What I love about this is it's probably one of the lesser-known books about praying, and it's just 31 prayers. Actually, I think there's, sorry, there's 30 and a 60-day version. But what I really like about it is two things. One is that it's by a woman. And though that may sound really strange, there's a lot of things I, I end up reading that are just by men. It's wonderful to have like some different kind of perspective, especially in praying. And the second thing I love about this is, aside from other books on prayer, which are great, like Valley of Vision, of course, is like a really common one. What I love about her, the way that she's constructed these prayers, is that she inserts particular spaces for you to deviate from what she's written. So she provides this wonderful kind of rubric or this kind of lattice work for you to kind of get into but then she says she actually provides space for you to stop and for instance pause and reflect on God's providence in your own life so it's the best of being able to kind of jump into somebody who's articulated some prayers very well and at the same time to participate in them to kind of spur you on to praying in a way that you might not have been praying before so check it out on Amazon pray the word 31 prayers that touch the heart of God just 99 cents for Kindle. So wow. there's really no excuse to kind of jump into it and grab it. It's a really great resource. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, kind of in that vein, you noticed last night when we had our Good Friday service or our ordinary Friday service, <laughs> our Friday <laughs> special, non-special meeting service. Smooth. Uh, when we had our Good Friday service and we did uh, the Lord's Supper and as a deacon, I often pray over, uh, pray before we distribute the uh, elements. And I prayed basically through like question, oh, it's like, fifth, like 13, 14, and 15 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which uh, talks about like sin and the covenant of life. And so uh, I'm really finding a lot of benefit in connecting my prayers to something more concrete than just like the thoughts that are coming out of my head. Right. Because it's so easy to kind of like get lost in your prayers. Yes. Um, especially like when you're praying publicly for anything, it's really easy to sort of like start to ramble. But if you take a few minutes to think through like, all right, theologically what's going on in the service right now. Um, I know some people kind of balk at the idea that praying out, like praying publicly is a teaching tool, but like Jesus did that. Oh, it is. And um, so we obviously can't say it's wrong if Jesus did it. So 
so thinking through what you're praying and having that framework in front of you, I found is just really helpful because it keeps you centered. It helps you communicate true theological things. You don't fly off into that like, dear father, thank you for dying on the cross and living in my heart. And now I'm a moralist. Right. Like you, you structure your prayers around like reliable theological statements from the past or, or something like this, where you have like a book that's been well thought out, it's been edited and researched, right. and it's been kind of vetted by by publishers and things like that. It's really helpful. Yeah, it's true to the title because it goes right to what you're saying. It roots itself in scripture. So basically, yeah. you're just praying through phrases in scripture that have been kind of put together thematically. Yeah, and that's really really helpful. Have you seen? Maybe we talked about this. Have you seen that like YouTube clip? I think this is for real. It's it's in some church, a large church, and it's at the end of a set of worship music. And this worship leader is praying, and it's just going off the rails, like in an exceptional way. Like he starts, he can't. He's just trying to use language or thinking of language that's like common. He goes into the pledge of allegiance at one point. The pastor actually <laughs> has to come and like kind of tap him on the shoulder and try and to get stop him. Transition. Yeah, I should try to find. I've I'm never seen sure that. I'm pretty sure it's for real, but that would be an extreme example of where, especially when you're in front yeah. of people, if you haven't been thoughtful and preparing, yeah, you're likely to just kind of go off, and then you realize you start panicking because you're in front of people praying, yeah. and that's a big deal, and it should rightly be so. And then you can kind of just lose your mind. Yeah, or or the other direction goes where you get into these like ruts where you you pray the exact same, yes. maybe I'm not the that. exact same words, but you pray like the same format. Like we have we have a couple guys in our church who do the they distribute the um they 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 usher for the offering, and it, it's like the same exact pattern. And you know I love these guys; it's great. And actually, I've seen them grow in their in their public and in their public prayer life there. But also, like, when we gather as a church, they're more apt to pray in a, like, in a small group, um, or I suppose our church is, like, a small group. But they're more apt to pray out loud in those settings because now they're becoming more comfortable. So I don't want to fault them for it. But it's kind of like the same thing. It's like a, like, a gratitude for the weather is, like, really common. Right. And then, like, and then you're, you can kind of sense there's a part where they don't know where to go. And then also, like, well, in Jesus' name, amen. Like, so it's helpful to have these kinds of, like, regular rhythms, um, memorizing the scripture, right. memorizing a catechism, really just sort of like sinking yourself in. Um, sometimes I'll, when I'm praying, like a phrase or a concept from what I've been reading kind of academically will come forward. Um, so it's just really helpful to kind of like keep in the back of your mind the idea of these are reliable words, maybe not like sound patterns of words, right? They're not professional. Right. Sometimes they are, but um, keep in the back of your mind, like, I should be listening for things that can help me in my prayer life. Right. Um, and I've just found that helps me turn my reading into a more devotional exercise, too. Right on. So what do you got that you're affirming? So I am affirming the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. That's right. So next weekend, April 26th, uh, which is just probably two days now from uh, when this is going to be released, I will be attending the conference in Philadelphia, which I'm super excited about. Um, it's the the topic this year is Ordo Salutis. People like Liam Gallagher are going to be there, Kevin DeYoung, um, David Murray, I think, might be. So it, it's a great conference. Um, it's probably going to be pretty small because it's taking place at a church, which I like. I would rather go to a smaller conference than a really big one because right. then you actually get to engage with people. You might actually get to engage with the speakers. So if anyone is in the Philadelphia area or wants to travel to the Philadelphia area, I know that you can still register. Um, make sure you shoot me an email at Tony at reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, if you're going to be there and we can get together and do like a little reform brotherhood meetup, um, it's going to be a ton of fun and I'm really looking forward to it. And the best part about this conference is that it goes through Sunday, but Sunday morning is a gathering at the host church to celebrate the Lord's day as, as a sort of 
body that's been assembled from from a, a wide region, diverse backgrounds, like diverse that. churches. We're going to gather and celebrate together. And the, the church service, the sermon for the service ends up being kind of like the final address, which is appropriate because we're, we're doing this academic exercise. We're talking about some pretty heady theological topics. And then the final, uh, the final thing we do as a group at the conference is we sit under the preaching of the word and we kind of bring all of the um, teaching that's happened to a devotional and a sermonic and a charismatic kind of climax. And then we go back out into our world kind of refreshed and ready to go. So I'm super excited about it. Um, if you're going to be there, shoot me an email. I'd love to meet some listeners in person. Um, I think it'd be great. And you know what, Jimmy? I'm, I'm looking at you because I know, <laughs> I know you're in range here. We know where you live, Jimmy. We know that you're close. I mean, it's in your backyard. So um, let me know if you're going to be there. Anybody else is going to be there. It's going to be a really good time. So that is actually a really good transition to my denial, believe <laughs> okay. it or not. All right, let's For do it. For once, we did it right. So I'm denying against thinking of the church as a building and mourning the wrong things. Yeah. So at this point, it's old news that, of course, parts of Notre Dame was destroyed by fire. And there's no doubt that, speaking historically, that is a great tragedy. Like yeah. To lose some of that wonderful history and some of that wonderful art is, in no small measure, just a really horrific thing. And I've actually been to Notre Dame twice, and in, when, you, when you enter, it's just absolutely stunning. Like, yeah. It really is breathtakingly beautiful. And part of that I pair with the idea that in, in the United States, in our country, we have a lot less history of that age. Right. But also because we are so democratic, so individualized, so democratized, we do not understand what it is to really have any sense of true monarchy. Yeah. So you have, like, in Europe, this development of churches and architecture that understood we live under an a authentic and autonomous monarch who more or less is appointed by God through, through hereditary right. means. And so because of that, we're going to build something that is majestic and full of splendor. And so we just have a good conception of that. So... I appreciate all this conversation that's gone on about really talking about what it is to lose that historicity. Where I think it's moved into something that's totally unhealthy is when it moves into this idea of that, the religiosity of yeah. what we're talking about here. So we get into relics, icons, all those other things. And I've seen just this amazing outpouring of really distressed people talking about how horrific it is to lose these particular items. As if like it's a loss of faith itself. Yeah. And so that's really hit me hard. And then I've been personally convicted that if we're understanding Christ properly, where the church is not the building, but the body of believers, the little coming together, as you just said, yeah. of all these people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, whom God has saved by his sovereign power in his sovereign grace, then that convicted me to think, I, while people are mourning the loss of these items, these physical things, which will perish, I just do not mourn enough the persecution of our brothers and sisters. Yeah. In other countries. If I'm saying that really is the body of Christ, and here by extension in example or comparison is a building that's being destroyed by fire, and people are really weeping over that, do I weep over the martyrs, or even those who are just being persecuted in other means all over the world? Do I pray for them? Do I come before the Lord and before his throne of grace and ask that they be given that, that kind of secret power of the Holy Spirit to withstand what they're experiencing? And the answer is no for me. Yeah. So this denial is in some sense a reminder that if I believe strongly that the body of Christ is in fact his church now, then there's great rejoicing in that. I would be sad if my church building burned down, but it would not cause me to stumble forward in my faith at all. Yeah. Knowing that the church is more than just where we hang out. But at the same time, that means that I really need to go to before the Lord for my brothers and sisters who are elsewhere that are really literally being destroyed, that the enemy is working against them to actively try to destroy them. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know... As I've reflected a little bit on like what's 
what's happened with Notre Dame burning and the way that Roman Catholics have responded to it, the way that kind of like French nationals have responded to it. And then this is my frustration, the way that Protestants have responded to it. Like, I think your reflection on this is exactly what we need to do. Like, we need to look at this. We say this is a tragedy on a number of levels. We should praise God that there was no loss of life. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a building. It's a historic, important building, but it's a building and it burned down and it didn't even really burn down. Like most of it is still there. Right. Right. Um, but then now we have people totally losing their minds because, oh, what are we going to do? This, this is the heart of Paris. Well, it's a building. Like, right. okay, I get it. But I saw a tweet, or maybe it was a Facebook post. It doesn't really matter. I saw a Facebook post this week. It was a, a Protestant who said something along the lines of, like, is it any surprise that Notre Dame burned down on the day of Holy Week <laughs> that we celebrate Jesus cleansing the temple? Wow. And, and my response is... What is wrong with people? <laughs> yeah. Because first of all, there's no such thing as Holy Week, right? right? Right, right. Holy Week is not a real thing. It's not as though God is waiting for a man-made calendar event to execute his providence, right? If he wants to execute providence, he will. And yes, sometimes God uses strange timing like that to communicate something, but we don't know that. We talked about right. this last week. Like, we don't cast lots anymore. Right. And this is the same kind of thing. Like, first of all, Holy Week's not a thing. Second of all, when did reformed believers suddenly become pagan astrologists? Because that's what, we're, that's what they're that's what doing, right? Yep. They're looking at the timing of an event mm-hmm. in relation to some arbitrary thing on the calendar, which is no more or less arbitrary than the location of the stars. And in fact, probably is less arbitrary or more arbitrary because right. there's actual forces, like like physical forces that have to do with like positions in the galaxy and stuff. And we're using that as omens to determine God's will. So now we've invested all this meaning not just in this holy day, but into a particular event on the holy day. And now we've used it to stand in condemnation. And you know how, you know what Jesus talks about when there's weird things like that that happens? If you don't repent, you too likewise will right. perish. So ra- now rather than looking at a tragedy, being one, thankful that no one died, two, thankful that we're not, we're not under God's wrath. Right. Instead, we're using it as an excuse to stand in judgment over some other mysterious force because nobody died. Who's right. this a judgment on? Right. Right. Um, so it, it's just been weird because it's like all of a sudden we turn into like omen seekers when something weird and coincidental happens. Right. Like, yeah, everything happens in God's providence, but it's no more an omen that um, Notre Dame burned down than it is that uh, Joel Olstein's church didn't. Right. Right. By that right. same logic, we have to look exactly. at Joel Olstein's church and be like, God must be really pleased with his church because he didn't cleanse it out on the, the day we talk about the cleansing <laughs> of the temple. Right. So we just have to like. And you know what? That's an, that ties in exactly to what you're talking about with this persecuted church thing. Is there are churches every day that are are vandalized? Exactly. There are Christian. I mean, church buildings. Right. There are Christians who are murdered and right. and tortured and persecuted every day. And if we're going to look at this and tie it to some omen because of Holy Week, then we have to look at those and say, well, those people must stand under judgment. And just like right. that, we've become Job's bad counselors. Yes, exactly. Instead of, you know, instead of Eliphaz and, and the communication that the Lord brings, that God has mysterious ways. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at events and recognize that certain things are 
at least broadly speaking, signs of God's judgment, right? right. The fact that a fire could destroy a building is a sign of God's overall judgment. Right. But the fact that this particular fire burned this particular building at this particular time may or may not be God's judgment. We right. don't know. It exactly. could it could be it could be that there's actually some sort of good that's coming out of this, and this is actually God's blessing. You know, there may be Roman Catholics who come to faith because of this, right. because all of a sudden they're realizing, well, man, I had all my I had invested all this faith in this particular crown of thorns right exactly that's what i'm saying and and all of a sudden they realize that how stupid that is right and how 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 fleeting that is right how the object of their faith could have easily been burned up in a fire and what good is an object of faith if it can be burned up in a fire right and so so there's all these things that it's like man we just need to stop stop being dumb sometimes <laughs> that should be the the one rule of all social yeah. media yeah exactly. don't be dumb don't be dumb yeah uh, it'd be like uh, keep calm and don't be dumb. Don't be we dumb. need to make a t-shirt yeah. like that. Yes, or just don't be dumb. Keep calm. Yeah. Either way. Yeah, I agree. So what do you deny? Speaking of don't be dumb, so I actually found out. I, I doubt that you've heard about this because I just found out about this morning. Um, for the sake of Christian charity, I'm going to leave the name of which church and which pastor this is off of my denial. Okay. But I just found out that a large church, mm-hmm. like a large multi-campus church, and we're not talking about someone like a Stephen Furtick. We're talking about a, a reputable church with a pastor who preaches the gospel, rightly handles the word, um, is charging admission to their Good Friday service. Or really? charged admission to their Good Friday service, and maybe their Easter service. How does that work? So if I'm putting the most charitable construct on it, yeah. which is what we should always try to do, of course, I think probably what it is is um, they have too many people coming, right? and so they need to somehow control... Uh, you know, control the people that are coming in. It's just logistical. Right, logistical to make sure they're not violating fire codes. And then probably the next step is, well, if we just give out passes, then people will take it and they might not come, which means other people who wanted to come can't. And so we're going to charge a a nominal fee. I mean, that's like five bucks. It's not anything significant. We're going to charge a nominal fee. So there's a little bit of teeth in it if you don't come. You've lost something if you just take It's classic economics, what I'm saying here. But but at the end of the day, they're still charging admission to to a worship service. And I was talking to someone about this online and they're like, well, it's a, it's like a good Friday service. It's not the Lord's day. And I said, that's our theology. That's not their theology, (laughs) right? right? In their theology, this is another worship service. This is, this is no different than a Sunday morning worship service for them. And they're charging an admission to it. And this is what drives me nuts. There's a couple things. So first of all, right. Uh, first Timothy three, right. An overseer must be above reproach, not a lover of money, of good reputation with outsiders, all these things, right? Well, how can we be a good reputation to outsiders if it looks like we're greedy? How can we say we're not a lover of money if we're charging admission to our sermons? Now, that may not be what's going on. It probably isn't. But at the end of the day... It's still it one of those like things it. where it's like, this is what it looks like. And this is this is a church that also canceled their Lord's Day service, not because it was Christmas, but because they had so many things going on on Christmas that they their staff was too burned out to do the Lord's Day service. Yeah. So that's my first struggle is like, this is just the, the optics of this just look bad. And before anybody says like, well, who cares about the optics? The Apostle Paul cares about <laughs> the optics. He specifically says, you have to be cautious about how people think about you. Right. If people don't respect you, then you're going to fall into the shame that comes with that. And you're, that's a snare of the devil, right? Because then you're driven all of a sudden to do ungodly things in order to regain that prestige that you've lost with the community. And the second thing that frustrates me, and this is something that I, I know you'll resonate with, but a lot of people won't is how many 
small churches that have struggling budgets are people driving past every Sunday to go to this big church right, yeah, for sure. or to go to on Good Friday. And and as a small church, right, we have we have 12 members. Our budgets are as lean as they possibly can be. By God's graciousness, we meet our budgets, but that's not always the way it is, and there probably will come a day where that's no longer the way it is. Right. And it's been that way in the past where we've had to, like, give pastor a pay cut because we don't have money anymore. Right. So how many... How many Christians are driving to go to this particular church on a Sunday and driving past and in the area that it's in probably a half dozen small country churches that are struggling to pay their mm-hmm. pastor appropriately? Yeah, right. Whose kids all have to wear used hand-me-down clothes from their older siblings. Sure. I mean, you're the oldest, so you don't get hand-me-downs. <laughs> but who had to wear used hand-me-down clothes sure. from their older siblings because pastor doesn't have enough money to pay the bills. Right. So like, those are the things that I think as the church, right. Kind of tying that into like the church is the people as the church. We need to think about like, do we pay our pastors appropriately? Am I going to a church that I, I bypass four or five good Bible believing Bible teaching churches. Now that's not to say that if you have Presbyterian convictions, you're not allowed to go past the Baptist church to find a Presbyterian church or even if you have children and you need to go somewhere where there are other children so they can socialize and, and grow in the faith together, right. that it's okay to drive past a church that doesn't have anything that will foster that kind of spiritual development in your children. Right. That's okay. But like just, well, I like this pastor's preaching. Right? right. We we have this celebrity mindset that extends to, to celebrity pastors, celebrity Bible translations. Right. I posted an article on my blog with some concerns about the CSB um, because I'm reading through that with my, my devotions right now. Yeah. And I had people like like vehemently like insulting me because I dared to question this translation. And I'm like, it's a Bible translation. Right. Right. No, but no Bible translations. Perfect. I've got concerns about the ESV, too. But, like, even the celebrity kind of cult of celebrity we've developed with people, it extends to, like, everything. Right. So th- this this is just, like, a, a symptom or a microcosm of, like, some of the broader problems in the church. And this the charging admission, right? Like, what the heck? Like, what do, yeah, you, what do you do with that? Maybe you do something where, like, you charge a – you put a deposit. Right. Like, and you say, okay, well – we have to make it so people don't just waste these tickets because we want as many people to come, but you can turn your ticket back in on the way out the door and we'll give you all your money back. We're not charging you admission. We just need to, you, this is to reserve right. your spot. Uh, but even that's really shady. Yeah. Um, and the worst part about it is there's no explanation anywhere that I've been able to find about why it is that this person or this church is charging admission. So there's no disclaimer that says, hey, this is just a logistics thing. Right. There's nothing except, it, it doesn't look like anything like, we know this is going to be really popular and we want to make some money off of it. That's what it looks like. Right. And so, yes, the judgment of charity, yes, the ninth commandment commands us to, um, to do everything we can to choose to believe the best about a situation. But there's also a point that the judgment of charity actually breaks the ninth commandment when you're faced with overwhelming evidence. Right. And with something like this, like we're kind of getting there. Like there's no good reason to think this isn't exactly what it looks like other than just sheer force of will of not wanting to think that this brother is, is charging admission to his sermons basically. Right. So, Either way, it's hard to come back from how it appears. Yes. Yeah, it is. And especially on a day like Easter when presumably they're doing this because they know they're going to draw a large crowd. Right. And that larger crowd is going to be from those who are not regularly part of the right. body of Christ. So you're you're actually segmenting that appearance toward a particular right. group and that makes it all the more yep. potentially damaging. Yeah, and, and non-Christians or nominal Christians already think 
that the church wants exactly. their money. So, so yeah, some of them may go because, you know, my grandma goes to this church and I really want to go because she's, you know, she's going to, she's going to be upset if I don't go to church with her on Sunday. Right. Right. Or that college kid that's like, well, my mom wants me to go to church while I'm at school. And so I'm going to go to this, this Easter thing. But like, those are the people that are already suspicious of the church exactly. who already think that the church just wants their money. Right. So it's like, you're just reinforcing these negative fault. I mean, maybe not faulty. I mean, there's a lot of really greedy pastors out there. Um, but you're reinforcing this negative stereotype and at the end of the day, like you're becoming this negative stereotype, whether you're intending to or not, whether he's, whether this uh, church is doing this purely for logistic reasons or not, um, they're still generating a ton of revenue, right? They're still generating a lot of money, uh, on the basis of this. And where's that money going to go? Well, probably into the, probably into the budget, right? But like, there's nothing to say what's going on. It's just really frustrating. Right. Be, at least an explanation would be helpful. Yeah, something. Something to clarify why. And he's getting enough like bad press that I'm sure this is going to come out after the fact. But if you have to explain after the fact, you've already lost the game. Yeah. Like you've already lost it if you have to. It's going to look like nothing but backpedaling and justification if you have to explain after the fact. Well, and this is actually somewhat related to today's topic yeah. because we're going through Joel Beakey's book, Reform Preaching. And we're in chapter four, and we're about to get, we're just on the cusp of getting into some examples he's going to go through. He's talked about and defined experiential reform preaching, and we're about to get into his examples of those who have done it well. And right before we do that, he has this chapter, chapter four, and this whole chapter is basically focusing on the spirit that is required for experiential preaching. Right. I think it's a great segue into all the examples he's about to give. But before we even got into like what he was talking about, he gives this opening statement that I think is wonderful. It's a little bit provocative. I, I think we should just throw it out for us to evaluate. Okay. So here's what he says on page 77. I want to quote him. Simple sentence. Vicky writes, Preachers who preach casually convey the impression that they do not have anything really important to say. Yeah. That's a beautiful big statement over the top. It what is. do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that probably bears more definition um, about what he means because... Does he mean, like, conversationally? Right. right? Does he mean um, vernacularly? Right. Um, if I don't preach with these and thous, right? Joel Beakey loves the King James Version of the Bible. Um, that gives his preaching a sort of, like, lofty, almost, like, aristocratic feel. Is that what he means? Like, if I use the ESV, if I, heaven forbid, I read something out of the message to make a point. Right. right? Is that what he means by casual? Um or conversational. I mean, I, I think it needs more definition, which I, he goes, I mean, he, that's kind of like the whole point of the book is to define what he means by not casual. I mean, that's part of it. Right. Um, but on the face of it, I think there's probably truth to it, but it's hard to know when, when the definition's not there yet. Yeah, I'm with you. I think what's interesting to me about that statement is he doesn't pull any punches. I presume that he makes it a little bit purposely ambiguous right. for us. Yeah. Because I think that our culture right now is one that gravitates toward a casual sensibility about many things. And I wonder if he's just trying to push back against that right from the beginning. Because I think what he starts to emphasize right away, even that I picked up, was just how heavy the responsibility of experiential preaching yeah. is. Yeah. And that you really shouldn't use... Actually, I think he goes on to say, and we should just get into this, that you know he actually would encourage preachers to move away from any kind of joking yeah. or levity or frivolity in their preaching. Right. Which I think there might be a place for some levity when it's appropriate, but I think we probably have both experienced sermons where you can tell where a pastor has inserted something just for the laugh or the joke, yeah, or to be funny, or to bring levity when it shouldn't be there. yeah. So this idea of being casual, I kind of resonate with that, because I wonder if we have 
let we, as people attending our churches, have let our pastors get away with being too casual or have, in another way, kind of influenced them to say, that's what we need. We need you to be casual with us. Yeah. And not to, not to give us the heavy, full proclamation of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think he, um, you know, he, he kind of heads off the discussion of like, well, is this just a matter of style, like conversational right. vernacular? Because he ends that paragraph by saying this is far more than a matter of style. Right. So he's, he's not just talking about the way, like the, the form of our words, right? He's not talking about like a three-point sermon versus, you know, like some sort of uh, biblical redemptive expository sermon. Like he's not talking about that. He's talking primarily in my read about the attitude of the minister right. and his perspective on what he's doing. What, what is it that the, the pastor is actually attempting to accomplish in the sermon? Um, you know, a lot of churches, it's about behavior modification, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's biblical self-help, right? Right. Well, biblical self-help is turn to Jesus, repent, and be changed by the Holy Spirit, not here are five practical tips for a healthy marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, the Bible has things to say about marriage, and I'm sure there are at least five practical tips that we could garner <laughs> from, but that's not... That's not what the scriptures are for in terms of how we use them in proclaiming the word on the Lord's day. Right. And I think that's what he's driving at. And I think, I think this would extend even to like how the minister prepares for the sermon. Yeah. Right. What it is that he is doing. And in my experience, when a pastor is really kind of like happy, slappy, jokey in a sermon, it represents um, the fact that he has not done the proper like preparation and preparation is not an emphasis for him. I don't remember who it was. It was someone in kind of that Mark Driscoll, Stephen Furtick complex, that, that like group of pastors who said something like, if you want to learn to be a good pastor, you should go watch some stand up comedy for a while. And and what he was getting at is not all that all is it's, it's much more controversial than it. All right. It's, Sounds much more controversial right. than it is because what he was getting at is the delivery right. of a stand-up right. comic is something we should emulate. Right. But at the end of the day, that's the question mark, right? Yes, you can learn a lot about communication from watching a good stand-up comedian. You can learn a lot, of, a lot about good communication by watching a you know an order giving a political speech, and we should be willing to take some of those common grace insights. Right. But to communicate that as though like yeah, the comedians they really know what's going on because they can really engage their argument or their audience. There's a sort of um, naturalistic element to that kind of philosophy and preparation that I think cannot be a part of our like theology of preaching right is if if the primary thing that I'm trying to accomplish is a a worldly naturalistic connection with my audience and a sort of rhetorical manipulation to drive them to the point they want without a overriding understanding that preaching requires the unction of the Holy Spirit to do correctly you've lost what preaching is. Right. And I think that's, I think that's at the core of what he's getting at when he talks about how casual preaching is just not the way we want to go. Like I can be conversational, right? There are times uh, in a sermon where I'll stop and I'll kind of ask the congregation a question and I'll wait a little bit to see if anyone's going to answer. And if they do, that's good. Right. If they don't, then you can use that as kind of a rhetorical element and, and you can do that. Right. That is not, at least I don't think that's what he's talking about. And I've listened to a fair amount of Joel Beakey sermons. 
he cracks a joke once in a while. Like, he's not without humor. Right? He's winsome. He'll, he'll say something in a dry way, and you can hear it elicits a, a laugh. And he's a brilliant communicator. So he's not doing that on accident. It's not like he says something and gets a laugh, and he's like, oh, I didn't realize that was going to happen. I better make sure I don't do that again. Right. Like, he's crafting his sermons, as we've said through this whole thing, to connect to the heart of the people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you connect to the heart of the people by incorporating a little bit of humor in what you're doing. Because the Bible does that. Jesus right. did that. Yes. And, and that's, how, that's how humans work. So I, I can't believe that he's just talking about that, right? We're not talking about like Jonathan Edwards' monotone looking down at the, looking down at the manuscript and preaching in a monotone. Like that's not what he's talking about. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the locus of what he's driving at is... He's trying to answer what is in the heart of the experiential preacher. Right. And this is all under his kind of, his organization of passion. So there's, right. it's interesting that that's where he goes with passion. Because we think of passion, I think, generally as energy, yeah. as fire. And I like that what he says is that the aim of preaching is to please God and not man. That seems so obvious. But right. how many times do we think sometimes our preachers and what we come looking for when we come to right. the sermon is to please us, yeah. to be interesting, to be engaging? And as you were talking, it struck me when you used Jesus as an example in his own teaching, that what we find when those who are hearing him are responding to it, or they're, they're speaking about how they understand or are hearing him, they say they're, they're blown away because he speaks as one with authority. Not right. as one with like really great turn of phrase, not yeah. one with like a lot of great jokes, yeah. or a lot of great cultural references, or that he, he really does. In fact, some of the time, they don't even understand what the heck he's saying, yeah. but they know that he's speaking with authority. That is absolutely clear. So I think as what he's driving at here is that on essential matters of theology and doctrine of the scriptures, that we shouldn't bring any levity or frivolity into those things. And I like what you said, because I think that there is a tendency sometimes for pastors to feel like in the absence, let me make a, can I just go out and make a judgment? So we'll see if you tell me if this is where, of course. I sometimes sense that when there is the need to, can I use your happy slappy? Yeah, let's do it. Slap happy, joke making, happy slappy. preaching. Yep. When that happens, that sometimes I think what a pastor is trying to do is they're trying to create a mental hook in the absence of being able to find one this in the scripture right. itself. Yeah. And so I think that we can get into that kind of replacement where they feel like they need to manufacture something that will help us remember it. And illustrations are fine, but sometimes I've heard like an illustration work to death. We want to be like, okay, we yeah. get it. You can just say it. We understand it. Yeah. But when you kind of, you make that your storytelling, you draw all that out and you're saying, just, let's just get to the scripture then. Understand what you're saying. Let's move into the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's funny. There's a sort of a joke that Ashley and I pass back and forth when, when we were at, in Connecticut, um, at the church, the, the preacher, the pastor there was a, a good, a good preacher. Um, he was extremely long winded and he would commonly get to the, this isn't even the point I was going to make, but he would commonly get to the point where he would say something like, this is it. This is a verbatim quote okay. in summary. Here are 10 practical steps. <laughs> like he would say stuff like that. And there was one Sunday where, like, he did a sermon, and the sermon was about, like, the scriptures being, being like, a, a, like spectacles you put on. He's trying on Calvin's language that the scriptures are the lens that we look through. So great point. Good right. point. And then it was like he launched into it. He went to do the Lord's Supper, and he launched into another sermon about the Lord's Supper. And so at the end, and he was talking about lifting the cup. He was talking about how the Lord's Supper is kind of like a toast to the Lord, that we commemorate the Lord. Okay, I don't know that I would have gone there, but okay, whatever. It's yeah, not that big of a right. deal. But when he got to the point where he actually kind of gave the instruction to take the Lord's Cup, this was a church where, like, they distribute the cup, you drink it, they distribute the bread. And we ate the bread as we got it to signify, and let this again is, like, sometimes we invest meaning into the Lord's Supper that's not there. But right. we ate the bread 
individually to signify our individual relationships with God, but then we waited and we drank the cup together to signify our unity. Okay, whatever. It's yeah. not biblical imagery, but it's also right. not non-biblical imagery. But when he gave the instruction, he's, he's like, so put on your glasses and lift the cup and put down the, like, it was literally like four or five things in a row because he had created all of these mental hooks and he was trying to like drive them all to together. And it, it just became this weird like put on your glasses, lift the cup, drink the cup. But like it was just strange. And I think you're right. Like we we try to create these mental hooks in there because we're not dependent on the scriptures right. to do that. It's the same thing as like like the second commandment violation, mm-hmm. right? We we feel like we have to have these visible things. We have to confront our senses to connect with the Lord. Well, the Lord's given us two two things to do that, right? He's given us the Lord's Supper and he's given us baptism. And so we construct these other hooks because we don't feel like those are enough. Um, And that, that kind of gets into all of this, like reformed preaching. We talked about this last time, the point, part of the point of the reformation in reference to worship and preaching, simplify, 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 right? Right. The old Testament had all of these, um, all of these typological trappings pointing forward to Christ, all these typological um, ceremonies and rituals and they were ornate and they they confronted your senses and they offended your senses and they did all these things to you to sort of lock in the promise that was to come. And now that the substance of the promise has come and that substance is Jesus Christ, we don't have to have all of these trappings right. anymore. We look back to one thing and one thing alone, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And we do that with the Lord's Supper. And preaching should be the same way. And I think I think that's the point he's making. I think so too. Is that preaching should be simple, right? When he talks about it, it gets into like the difference between a lecture and a sermon is the right. simplicity of content, right? A preaching should be simple because it should connect with even, even the person of the meanest, uh, meanest intellect and the meanest study in your, in your congregation. Right. If you're going, and this, this is why a preacher needs to know his congregation. Right. If you're going way above the heads of your congregation that they don't get it, that's a problem. And I'll, I'll admit, like, that's been a struggle in my preaching, right? I know the congregation well, but I have not quite, I haven't quite got to the point where I'm, I'm good at sort of bringing down, bringing myself down out of the ivory tower way of thinking that my head works in to bring myself down to where, and down isn't the right word, but bring myself to the place that the congregation's in right? and speak in a way that they understand and not use theological terms. Like, that's a struggle for me. But that's, that's what he's getting at is that the seriousness of preaching is tied to the purpose and the function of preaching and, and the way that we do that, the, this, I think the style is part of it. I, I, I mean, sure. I wouldn't say that he's, he's saying style is totally out there, right. but it's not just a manner of style, but the simplicity of preaching is central to what it means to be preaching in a reformed fashion. I mean, the Puritans were brilliant theologians. Like right. if you read their academic work, uh, you're like I cannot understand anything. If you read if you read Jonathan Edwards' philosophical and theological treatises, yeah. you you need a PhD in theology to really understand it. You need to have like you need to have like Mueller's terms of Latin theology right. next to you. But then you read his sermons, and it's so easy to read. It's so simple right. because it's the difference between writing for scholars and academics and preaching to the people, to the common person in the pew. Right. Um, right. It really is a big difference. And he's a good example because impounded in all those sermons you spoke about, which really resonate, which we find so approachable, is still all the heavy theological right. lifting that he's right. done elsewhere. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a good example. Like a pastor should be like a country doctor. Yeah. One who has all the knowledge was able to come into right. your home 
and really help you and make you practically understand the medicine, the treatment that which he's applying, which bears all or comes with all the weight of the knowledge that he has. Yeah. But he doesn't have to drop it on you in that way. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me, again, as you were talking, was just this idea that I think what Maybiki is getting at in terms of style, where it's relevant, is that there's a seriousness of the style. Yeah. That this is an emergency. We're communicating the, the humanity is in an emergency situation where they're under the judgment and condemnation of God outside of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to not be flippant with that message, uh, no matter how we bring it. And hopefully the pastor is bringing that on every single Lord's Day. Yeah. And that's another thing that I really like that he talks about in this, in this passage, or this chapter rather, about how prayer influences the hearts of the one who is an experiential preacher. And I think there's a lot of freedom in a, a quote that he gave from J.I. Packer that I want to read and have you react to. So here's a quote from Packer. Evangelism must rather be conceived as a long-term enterprise of patient teaching and instruction in which God's servants seek simply to be faithful in delivering the gospel message and applying it to human lives and leave it to God's spirit to draw men to faith through this message in his own way and at his own speed. Yeah. So we, we've spoken a lot about how, again, that using your words like the unction of the Holy Spirit, he is the one that brings conviction and applies the work of Jesus Christ into our lives. And that we cannot put that on an agenda or a schedule. But what I like about this, when I'm reading between the lines here, is I think sometimes there's a tendency for us as those who attend churches, who are praying over the work of our churches, we always come with anticipation on the Lord's Day to see the Lord act in some kind of demonstrative way. Yeah. And sometimes I think we can get frustrated or we get subtly discouraged. We're like, Lord, why isn't there a revival breaking out on this Sunday? Or every time we're, we're praying for that way, but that we would be excited and encouraged that sometimes, well, I think the way that the Lord works more often than not is in this cumulative effect where he's heaping on grace upon grace every weekday, yeah. every Lord's Day, where you're hearing, if you're sitting under great preaching, there will be a day perhaps where it'll break you but it may take several years. It may take yeah. just one sermon, but it may take several. And so we need to be encouraged. That this is the way the Lord works. And as we encourage and invite people to come into the body of Christ, as we witness, that this isn't just for pastors, it's for us as well. Right. That sometimes it takes seven or eight times for you asking somebody, would you be willing to come yeah. and hang out? Would you be willing to talk about this? Would you like to hear a little more about Jesus? You can say no like 20 times. This isn't like the, I don't want to get misunderstood. It's not like the Joel Olstein, like you're just one no away from rest. Right. It's not that is that the Lord must work in his own time, but often that means that the faithfulness of our preachers is something that we should really encourage them with. Yeah. Because they can be discouraged to say, like, nothing is happening. There's something happening. God is, I mean, Jesus yeah. said, my Father's always working. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Carl Truman, um, when he's talking about preaching, so it's, it's directly pertinent, he talks about how, like, um, he grew up and he took Latin, Latin courses or Latin um, studies as a, like a young child. Right. I don't I don't know what his educational situation was that he was taking Latin as a child, <laughs> but he was taking Latin as a child. He's a smart dude. And he says, um, you know, I don't remember any particular Latin lesson, but I know that I went because I know how to speak Latin. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the point. Right. It's like there are I mean, last year I listened to at least 52 sermons. Right. I could probably not tell you much about any particular one. Right. If I go back and look at the title, you tell me the title of a sermon on a particular day and the passage, I could probably give you a few points. Right. But that's actually probably more about me understanding the preacher because I know dad well. Right. I know his preaching well. Right. I know how he thinks in terms of how he puts together points and things like that. Um, but if you if you were to tell me, well, I don't have any evidence that you were there because you can't uh, you can't tell me anything about a particular sermon. What I'm going to tell you is. Well, uh, there's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life, and right. I trust Christ, 
and the preaching of my pastor on the Lord's Day is, if not, uh, if not the most important thing, definitely a most important thing in in my own sanctification. Like, and that's something we minimize, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we think about sanctification, and this this goes to what we've been talking about. I mean, it's been since the first year that we did this podcast. Like, probably the first I don't know. It was probably like episode thirty. We started talking about sanctification and monergism. Right. And the fact is that when we make sanctification uh, a result of the good works we're doing rather than the source of the good works we're doing, then we minimize all of the things that come from outside into us that are that God is using to sanctify yes, us. Exactly. And the preaching of the word on the Lord's day by not just by a pastor, I mean any preaching that you're sitting under, if you're a Christian, is is working towards your sanctification. But especially the preaching of your pastor who is responsible for your soul, mm-hmm. he will give an account. That's significant, and we we miss that a lot. And I, I think you're right. We have to encourage our pastors because, you know, we often go to church and we walk out of there and we're like, man, that, that sermon was a stinker. Like, that was just a bad <laughs> sermon. It didn't do anything for me. It didn't connect. But it's also one of those things that's like, that's totally even the wrong starting point. Yeah. It's okay to talk about, like, that a sermon was not appealing to you that there's nothing there's no great sin in saying like yeah that sermon just didn't really get me going like that's a statement of fact right but if getting you going or like however you want to phrase that you really love like were like satisfied by the sermon on like a uh worldly technical level or like a um uh, like a sensual level right. i mean like just like like your you. passions are excited by it mm-hmm. that's a, that's not a bad thing you no. know if a, if a sermon excites your passions in a godly way um but commenting on that's not fine. But if you think that's the point of the sermon is to excite your passions, or if you walk out of there, like you hear people, oh, I didn't get anything out of that. Well, first of all, how much study did you do during the week? How much soil did you till right. for that, that, um, that act of sowing a what seed? What was your prayer like? Right. What was your prayer like that morning? Were you praying for your pastor throughout the week? Right. Well, if he preached a stinker, then maybe it's because you weren't praying for him. Like, <laughs> right. like we don't want to get into like soup. Like that can be like a, you can fly off into mysticism. I'm pretty quick on that. Right. But the reality is that God commands us to pray for our pastors. Like that's a clear command in scripture that we are to pray for those, not only generally who are in authority over us, but specifically we're to pray for our pastors because they are taking care of our souls. They're shepherding our souls. If that's not happening, well, sometimes it's the sheep's fault. Like right. sometimes the sheep don't listen to the, the shepherd. And sometimes in our cases, like the sheep need to do what they're supposed to do in order for the pastor or the shepherd to do what he's supposed to do. Right. So I just think we need to, we need to really look at our theology of preaching. And that, I mean, that's why we're doing this book is because I can't, I'm not going to speak for you, but I know like my theology of preaching was probably more well thought out than the average person's, but it was still incredibly shallow. Right. On, on the whole, it was very shallow. It was very surface level. Um, and that affects how I listen to a sermon. Like, it's funny because I've actually started to just put my notebook down and just listen to the sermon. Like, taking notes is fine. Right. But, like, sometimes I get so caught up in, like, taking really detailed notes that by the time I, I get done writing my thing and, and know he's on the next point and I've missed it. Right. Um, and we so we have to sit back and think, like, the efficacy in a sermon is not abstracted from our listening. Mm-hmm. It's not abstracted from our paying attention. But it's not really in our paying attention. Right. The efficacy of the sermon 
is in the unction of the Holy Spirit as he works through the pastor and then also works in the listener right. or in the person being preached to. That's where the power is. And that's why that's why we can't treat preaching as a casual event. Exactly. And that, that becomes a third commandment violation, right? Right. Because attaching something, attaching vanity to something that is associated with the Lord is the essence of blasphemy. Right. So when we come to church or when we as, as people who are proclaiming the word, when we treat the word in a casual fashion, either by not devoting appropriate study to it, if we're going to be preaching or by using it as a source or a subject or a, a punchline in a joke. Right. And, and we how often do we do that? Right. But it's when easy. we do that, we've attached vanity to the Lord. And that's right. the essence of blasphemy. So you can do that as a preacher. But you can do that as someone in the congregation, too, when you decide that Candy Crush Saga is more important on your phone than listening to the sermon. Or that watching, I'm just going to say Game of Thrones, we had a whole episode on Game of Thrones, but watching anything on TV is more important than praying for your pastor. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you have to spend every minute in prayer. That's not what I mean. But when you are asked why you don't pray more... Right, I'm, I just got rocked over by your um, by JC Ryle on the public domain. He's crazy. Um, when you are asked why you don't pray more, if your answer is I don't have time, you're a liar. <laughs> right, like, you what, are yeah. lying because there is there is definitely something you can carve out of your right. out of your day. It, let me say this: if you are going to tell me that you don't have time to pray, then shut our podcast off right now and go pray. Yeah, like, for sure. Unsubscribe to our podcast if if you are going to say that. You're either a liar or you really don't have enough time and you need to start weeding stuff out. That's, I mean, and that's how we treat the Christian life as a whole seriously and especially preaching is we devote it to prayer. We lift our pastor up in prayer. We spend time praying for the people around us in our congregation. Right. Uh, that, that they would have a seriousness about preaching, that they would be edified by the word, that they would receive it, that they would be doing all that they need to do to make themselves fertile soil for the, the sermon to land in. Um, you know, I wasn't even thinking about the parable of the sower, but there you go. It right is, there. It's all right in there. Right. Yeah, and this seriousness I think that we're talking about is not the kind of seriousness where we modify our behavior because we expect if we don't, there will be severe consequences right. and punishment. In fact, in Christ we have this new freedom. So it's a seriousness as understanding that because we are united in Christ, we are bound by love, that of course love is a serious thing. Right. It's a serious, to be bound in love is a very heavy and weighty an appropriate thing to respond to with respect. So I think we're driving at, we need to get to that kind of place. Yeah. We just take it seriously. Not because I'm afraid, well, if I don't pray, God's going to bring judgment and punishment into my life. That's looking at this entirely backwards. Right. That's a legalistic mindset. And so there's one thing I want to kind of finish on before we do a little spiritual conferencing. Yeah. And that is, he makes one other interesting point about in answering what is in the heart of the experiential preacher. And I think this is as applicable to a preacher as it is to us. And he launches into a wonderful discussion about growth. There should be growth in the heart. But he speaks about it from a kind of a different angle. And that is he's focusing on growth being a fresh interest in God that requires an original life in God. And I love this language because this gets back to why I affirm that book, Pray the Word by uh, Tice King. Because to your point where we were discussing that, it's the idea of saying the way that God has created me, he's given me a unique original life to be lived in him. It's not to look like anybody else's per se. It's not to, and for the past, that means you don't have to preach like somebody else exactly. You shouldn't be trying to model your ministry after yeah. what somebody else has exactly done. God has given you not only the freedom, but he's wanted you. He's, in, he's embedded within you a personality that is so unique that as we live out our Christian walk, it's not like we should just try to emulate somebody that we really like to read 
or emulate somebody that we, we know. We should be trying to understand how we can take all of the scripture that God's full counsel and live it out in our own unique way that comports with yeah. the confessions and the commandments. So we have a rule of life. However, the life that we live is uniquely our own in Christ. Right. And I love that. He's like, yeah. he's basically saying, go out and be original in Christ. Take that seriously. Don't yeah. be like anybody else. Make that your adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's just, that's just Paul's teaching on the body of Christ, right? It, right? It's not any brand new special insight that he's bringing us. It's just God has created a body. And I think we often think about like that, that metaphor or whatever we want to call it. I actually think it's stronger than a metaphor because a, a local church especially is, is really like an organism. Yeah. But we, we take that metaphor, and I think we almost exclusively apply it to the local church. Right. And that is where I think it has its most its most direct application, right? Is a local church is composed of a group of people that God has brought together. Each of them contributes something, and if any of them is missing, something is missing. But that is not exclusively about the local church. The entire visible church is like that, right? There's a unique role that I, as a particular person with a particular history, a particular set of training and skills, bring to the visible church. And God has prepared me to be that person. Right. Right. If I apostatize, then the visible church loses what God has prepared me to bring. Right. Right. And I know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. Like, we're Calvinists, blah, blah. I get it. Like, but the scripture, the scripture still right. talks about it's it. It's your example. Right. The scripture still speaks about apostasy um, in real terms, right? And there's disagreements between Baptists and Presbyterians about the nature of apostasy, and I get that. But the scripture still talks about the fact that every part has a function. And by definition, if every part has a function, you take one of those parts away, then that function is not fulfilled. Right. And so if God has called me, I'm just going to, this is a totally made up example. I'm not declaring my intentions of anything. But if God has called me to be a mega pastor, uh, in a mega church, not a mega pastor, mega pastor, <laughs> mega pastor. <laughs> if God has called me to be a pastor in a mega church, yeah. right. Um, and we can debate all day whether mega church is something God condones or not. But if God has called me to be a pastor in a mega church and I, because of my own theological convictions, refuse to accept that call, then that's a problem. Like that's a function that is not being filled. Right. Likewise, if God has called me to be a pastor at a small country church of 12 80-year-old people that just need the word preached and there's never going to be anything besides that, that is a function that's not being fulfilled if I refuse to accept right. that call. And so when we do that, and we do it all the time, when we refuse to be obedient to God's moral will, right, the revealed moral will of God in the Bible, when we refuse to do that, we are not fulfilling a function. Right. And the key to that is that we're not cookie cutter, though. Right? So you and I have so many personality traits that are similar, right. but we also have a ton of personality traits that are very different. True. And, and if I try to be you or you try to be me, then we are not fulfilling our call. Right. But likewise, if we also try to be so distinct and so individualistic, I mean, it's funny, people laugh because we'll say something like, well, we might disagree on this. And then we never do. <laughs> like we hardly ever do. And, and early on we had people say like, you guys should, you guys should like have more conflict. And I was like, we're not going to manufacture conflict. Right. Like this is who we are. This is what our show's going to be like. And honestly, this is not bragging on the show, but the most, the single most common bit of feedback we get that's positive in nature is that the fact that you are a Baptist and I'm a Presbyterian and we still agree on so much is edifying to the people that listen to the show. Well, that's good. We're sitting like we, six right. inches away from each other right now. <laughs> it's true, and I'm like screaming. Uh, because because we, 
are able to embody the fact that our differences are not so great that we can't still be brothers in Christ. Right on. Right? And so so our unique relationship as brothers in, in Christ, brothers in law, right, that that edifies the church in a particular way that if we insisted on manufacturing conflict because that's who Baptists and Presbyterians are supposed to be online, right. like we would miss that. And and the church at large would miss that. Right. Now, all glory to God. Like he's constructed this, he's brought it together, he's made our silly little podcast something to use for his glory, not us. But that's still a reality that that's what it is. Right. Then this is very reformed because this idea that we should cultivate an original life in Christ by embracing the things that he's given us in terms right. of our talents, our turns of mind, our interests, like those are all just wonderful things. It's right. so liberating to know that we don't have to be somebody else. Right. And I think for pastors, maybe in particular, it's great to know they don't have to preach like somebody else, right. both in terms of their style or their turn of phrase or just their general oration. So I love that he went back to that. And it's, it's kind of the way I'd like to end at least this chapter, because I want to encourage everybody, including myself, to go after that original life. And part of that would be, for instance, picking up a book of prayers that are rooted in the scriptures that might force you, I'm going to use that word, to pray in a way that's unusual. Like, we need to get out of our ruts. Yeah. Sometimes we need to, like, mix up our Bible reading. We need to try different things. We need to read different books. We need to engage with different people that have different perspectives than right. on certain things. And not only are those things okay, I think, to your point, this is like a really integrated episode. We did not it need is, to do this. No. But we're talking about the body of Christ and being unified in Christ and then having original life in Christ and then praying. All of that needs to happen outside of ourselves. We need to understand and embrace this transcendent nature in which God has given us people from every tribe, nation, tongue, language to participate in. One of the great things about the church I attend is right across from the sanctuary in the fellowship hall meets a Spanish-speaking church. And being inter- inter- able to interact with some of those people who I speak very little Spanish. Yeah. But to have, we've been having recently some wonderful testimonies that have come by way of translation. And it's, it's just amazing. Yeah. Like, it's really amazing. And to think, like, these are my brothers and sisters, more than the people who don't believe that live next door to me. Yeah. These are the people that are part of my family. And it started to change how I understand and look at the body of Christ. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing just to be pushed on. So I need to, need to push. Go out and seek that, cultivate yeah. that original life yeah. in Christ. Yeah, I agree. Why don't we transition into some spiritual conferencing? So, Such a good segue. What has the Lord been teaching you this week, Jesse? <laughs> so this week I've been thinking a lot about... We need about, some like, transition music. Yeah, some like, kind of like, know, like... Jeopardy style. Do, 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 yeah, something I, like that. I feel like if I go on too long, I need to be like played off. Yeah. Like, if I'm accepting an award. Yeah. Which, do we have any more news on that award that we've been given for being one of the 50 top healthcare companies? No, she keeps on emailing me asking <laughs> me to register, and I keep on emailing her back and saying, uh, we're a theology podcast, and... Uh, I don't know. I think she's a robot. I think she's probably a robot. That could possibly be. So this week I've been thinking a lot, for whatever reason, about legalism Mm -hmm. and about legalism specifically manifested in the parable of the prodigal son. And what I've just been convicted about, what the Lord's been really like hammering on my heart is that the, it's because there's so much conversation right now and always, right, about legalism and antinomianism and that somehow the cure for either of those is to kind of force the opposites into the center. And I've just been convicted. I think the answer is really just to understand the grace of Christ. Yeah. Like that, that benevolent power that comes through Christ because you have the younger brother is just as much a legalist as the old, older one, right? Yeah. yeah. Because when the scripture says that he comes to his mind, he says, you know what I should do? I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father that I, I'm going to be his servant and I'll work basically to earn some sense of love, some small amount of respect. Right by doing what the servant does. That's legalism. And yeah. then, of course, like the older brother is the easy, low-hanging legalistic fruit because you know, he says, well, you've never given me a 
you know, go to like come hang out with my friends. And the father says, what are you talking? All I have is yours. Yeah. So it, on the answer to both those is just great. So I've just been really impacted by the fact that those conversations need to come to the, the fountain of grace and not to this like, well, let's modify behavior by making them less linguistic <clears throat> or less antinomian yeah. or trying to pr- put forward arguments that can convince them that, no, you just need to have less regard for the law. You need to have more regard for the law. We need to have more regard for grace. Yeah. And both brothers show a lack of respect and understanding of grace. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, as I reflect on that a little bit, um, I never thought about it in terms of both of them being legalists. And the reality is that when you're a legalist, you're also an antinomian. Those two things yep. are not actually different it's species. It's a full circle. Yeah. But the answer that the father gives to the younger son is pretty much the same as the answer he gives the older son, right? Right. The younger son comes home and basically says, like, I know I'm not entitled to anything, so I'm going to be your servant. Right. And what he says by what he does is, all I have is yours. Right. And the older brother comes and says, I, I don't have anything from you. You haven't given me anything. And he says, all I have is yours. Like, everything that I have is yours, and everything that God has for us is ours in Christ. Right. So I think that's a really good word. Yeah. How about you? Um, you know, it's been kind of a rough week just um, with work. Um, it's been tough and, and the dog has not been sleeping well. <laughs> so I've been, I've been just tired and cranky all week. And um, I was really impressed this week. Basically, we need to be watching our tone and how and, and what we say and do everywhere at all times. Sure. Uh, not in the legalistic sense, right? Not because God's going to be mad at us if we if we cut someone off on the road and get upset about it or something like that, but because the world is watching. Right. And other Christians are watching. That's true. So I had an interaction with a, a Christian guy. I'm not going to use his name, but I had an interaction with a Christian guy um, this week that uh, I've known for a really long time. Like, he's a guy that I know from Facebook. I've known him for a really long time. Um, we were pretty, like good friends as far as Facebook friends go. I mean, I consider him an actual friend, not just a friend on Facebook. And uh, maybe like two years ago, things just sort of got weird. Like like things got tense and weird and neither of us did anything about it and we just sort of drifted apart and it kind of came to a head. We got into it on Facebook this week. And what it ended up being is that I had been doing certain things that had been giving him the impression that I thought he wasn't really a Reformed Christian and, mm-hmm. and that I was looking down on him and that I, I didn't... And, and it was just this moment where it's like, I had no intention of doing any of that. Right. I had no idea that I was doing that. Um, and then, then the flip side of it is, um, you know, this week, and this wasn't something I was conscious of, but I had an employee who was leaving this week. And so, you know, you do like an exit interview with your employee who's leaving the institution. And what she said to me was, you know, I can always tell you're really tired, but you're never cranky. Mm. And she said, and that really means a lot to me that my, my manager can put aside his own, um, tiredness and crankiness, um, to, to be able to be a good manager and right. to be able to be kind and charitable. I shouldn't say charitable, but kind and, 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 um, fair at work, even though you're tired and I, I can tell you're tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was this point of me that was like, and, and my, my staff all knows that I'm a Christian, right? They all read my resume. Right. They all know that I have this evangelical podcast that I do. Um, and a lot of them have listened to it. So it, it, they know where I stand. Um, she didn't connect it this way. But it's not that much far of a jump to be like, and also, why are you that? Like, right. why, why are you able to do that? Right. Um, or why aren't you able to do that? So I just was convicted when, when she said that. I was convicted that, like, I need to be more aware of the image I'm presenting online, um, in person. Um, you know, you never know who you're going to run into that that you were rude to at McDonald's when they right. didn't get your order right. 
right? Or at Starbucks when they gave you the wrong coffee and you, you go off on them. Right. Um, I talk to people on the phone every day who are upset at the hospital. Um, and this is not that big of a community. So there's people that call that I know who they are and I, I run into them in the community and I like, they're rude to me on the phone because they don't know that they're ever going to have to interact with me in another place. And like that reality is something that as Christians, we need to be hyper aware of because if I'm a jerk to somebody one day and then I give them a Bible track the next day, I think tracks are a waste of time. So I would never do that. But if I'm a Christian (laughs) who thinks tracks are okay and you're free to do that, if I'm rude to you when you screw up my coffee order at Starbucks and then the next day I try to witness to you because I see you at the grocery store and I want to give you a track, that is just a slap in the face for most people. Right. And it reinforces this idea that Christians are hypocritical hypocritical tools. Right. Um, and a lot of us are. Like, yeah. Like, I'm a hypocritical tool more often than I'm not. Right. Um, so it, just by the grace of God, I was really impressed on the fact that, like, I really need to be watching the way that I, I interact with people and the way that I present myself. And, of course, if there's one person who models that exceptionally well, the Apostle Paul had that always yeah. on the forefront of his mind, especially yep. when he was in change and when he was in suffering. And that resonates with me because it's cliche to say that we're supposed to be emissaries and ambassadors of Christ. Right. We understand what that means to some extent. But because in public we basically get to live in anonymity, right. we don't put the same accountability on ourselves that the Apostle Paul put on himself, for instance. So, like, per your example, if I walked around all day with, like, a literal name tag that said, I'm a Christian, I definitely would behave a lot differently, yeah. quite honestly. Because everybody who was interacting with me, I'd have no sense of anonymity about behavior. Yeah. And they would be looking at me and bringing to bear judgment right away on behavior. And probably would call me out on if I was wearing a giant sandwich board that said, I'm a Christian, ask yeah. me about it. Or ask me about why I behave this way. So I'm with you. I think we need to probably take what's external in that idea and internalize it and really yeah. go after it. Yeah, that's a true story. I love it. Yeah, we should have uh, Raphael put together some sandwich <laughs> Just perform brotherhood. Perform I'm a brotherhood. I'm a Christian. Ask me about my behavior. Yeah, I love that. It's not a bad idea yeah. for a t-shirt. That's, that's a dangerous t-shirt, that's isn't a, it? Hey, you know what? Oh, man. Evangelism is dangerous. It is dangerous. It's talk a dangerous about, game. Talk about godly courage, yeah. secret power of the Holy Spirit, to put that bad boy on and just walk around. Yeah. Go to a mall or a place with lots of people. Yeah, like a t-shirt or like a bumper sticker, right? You guys, yeah, on, on yeah. Fast God stuff, you guys yeah, did like bad stickers. evangelism and it was like bumper stickers, Jesus bumper stickers. But if you had a bumper sticker that said, I drive this way because of Christ. Oh, man. Would that change the way you drive? It should, it probably would change. Here's my phone way. number. Call right. me about my yeah. driving. <laughs> yeah, call me about my driving. This this is the phone number. I mean, like, sometime, maybe I should do this. Maybe we should put, I'm, I'm not going to do this because I just don't want to. Yeah. And I don't think it's it's fair to do someone else. But like, if our pastor's phone number was public, <laughs> would our behavior right. change? Like if we had a real expectation that people were going to email our pastors, if, um, if we did something wrong, right. right? If we took Matthew 18 seriously, right. which we don't often don't, we don't. Um, w- would it change our behavior? Yeah. Um, I would hope so. I- but, then why don't we just change our behavior? Right, exactly. That's kind of what you're saying, is getting yeah. the Holy Spirit, allow, allowing him to be, be, not to quench the work that he should be doing in our lives. And I think that, that's not to say that he doesn't have sovereign control to do his good work. There is a sense in which we, we really need to be sensitive. Yeah. We need to be seeking, praying for that, asking for that kind of work yeah. to be done in our lives. Yeah. Still monogistic. We need to be asking for it. Do we yeah. want to be there? Absolutely. Well, Jesse, um, we announced last week that we weren't going to be giving away any According to Christ gear in our uh, confessional wear contest, but the Reformed Pilgrims just opened up their merch store. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be giving away some of their gear um, when we do our contest. So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest and enter. 
Um, we're just going to pick some stuff. We're not going to have like specific things that you'll get. I'll probably give away a couple mugs, a couple t-shirts, something like that. But go ahead, reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. Enter that. Um, we'll be drawing soon. Yeah, it's coming up. Yep. So give, yep. the, contest, the contest will close on April 30th, um, and we'll draw the next time that we're going to be recording um, after that. And we will announce it and then get your gear out. And if for some reason you haven't yet listened to Reform Pilgrim Podcast, you can go over yeah. to check them out because they're great brothers and fantastic content. Unless, of course, again, you need to pray, in which case, unsubscribe from us, subscribe to them. And yeah, swap it out. Yeah, swap it out. Their episodes are shorter and ours are continuously <laughs> getting longer. So. Can't stop, won't stop. Like, really, we can't stop. We can't. We just have to wait for the battery to run out of the microphone. <laughs> Well, I would say that this has been the definitive in-person podcast. On Reform Preaching by Joel. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it I has. know you love when I At least until next time. <laughs> until next time that we record in person. Since this book is like 70,000 chapters long, we're going to be doing this until Jesus comes back, I think. And, and Yeah, unless the Lord tarries. Yeah. It could be tomorrow. That's true. It could be. This may be our last chapter, in which case we'll, we'll see you in heaven. We'll talk about it there. It'll be great. We'll continue the podcast in heaven, though. I think we can, I think we can do that. I think we could probably continue podcasting in heaven because there's nothing intrinsically sinful about podcasting. I don't think so. Yeah, that's a different topic, I guess. Yes, it is. All right, well, until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh...